0: And be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. Today's guest on the pod is Savala Nolan. She is a writer, speaker, and lawyer. She is the executive director of the Felton E. Henderson Center for Social Justice at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. She's got a new book. It's called Don't Let It Get You Down, Essays on Race, Gender, and the Body. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work. At home and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can't be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another, like the one that comes next. The car on the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Savala Nolan, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Kelly. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: When I finished your new book over the weekend, I had this thought. You're navigating really painful and unjust topics, but you do so with such beautiful writing. And it reminded me of how when I was going through very deep grief, one of my avenues of respite was poetry. And so I sensed this theme, and it's come up a lot with my guests on this podcast, that our ability to hold how ugly and beautiful the world can be in the same moment is a kind of superpower. Does that make any sense to you?
1: It makes a lot of sense. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say I have the superpower. <laughs> <necessarily>.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know that I do either.
1: <laughs> um, but I certainly aspire to it. Um, you know, uh, before I, I, I have a comment, you know, regarding the superpower, but I also just want to say um, how much I love poetry and, yep what a respite it has been for me in in moments of grief. Um, And also at this point in time, it feels like uh, the language of poetry is the opposite of an algorithm. It, yes. There's a way that it's like extremely refreshing and um, I hate to use the word cleansing. Cause I sound so West coast, which I am, but <laughs> you know, I don't know if the Chicago audience will.
0: we <laughs> got a national audience. It's fine. And you okay, good.
1: So not everyone will recoil by the use of, from the use of that word, but there's something very cleansing about it. It's like the opposite of being fed algorithmic, algorithmic information. So I too relate to poetry and um, part of the reason that I, relate to poetry and love it so much is because of of what you've said about this ability to hold you know the bad and the good, the dark and the light, however you want to yeah. think about it um, poetry is complex enough to do that and and as a writer, you know I hope that my writing is complex enough to do that and you know I think if we're if we're unwilling to go into the shadow side of right. ourselves or, our lives, you know, we're, we're missing like a real solid chunk of mm-hmm. um, what is there to be learned, or seen, or savored, or excavated. Um, I'm someone who's pretty introspective and interested in growth. You know, I suppose if I if I weren't so inclined, I might not be so interested in the shadow side of things. Right. Um, you know, but you. You you know you you night and day like winter summer it's, it's sort yang. of a natural law right oh, that yeah. we we contend with duality and um, we ignore that I think at our at our own peril ultimately
0: agreed all right so this this book is about you and Walt Whitman said you know I contain multitudes you you contain many multitudes right I do <laughs> talk to talk to us about who you are.
1: Well, I'm a little bit of everything. Um, and in, in a, there's a way in which I think that makes me um, kind of a dual citizen of, of a lot of the poles in our culture. Um, and I'll, I'll just flesh that out a little bit. You know, I am Black and white, I identify as a mixed Black person. Um, but of course, in terms of my heritage, I am black and I am white. Um related to that, I'm descended from slaveholders on my mom's side and enslaved people on my dad's side and you can guess, you know, which is the white and which is the black yep. side there. I happened to um be put in a private school in first grade, like a very posh tony private school and went to private schools most of my life and so I've moved in some very elite wealthy spaces but I wasn't born into wealth. Um, you know, there's real abject generational poverty in parts of my family, on the black and brown side of my family, um, maybe unsurprisingly. And so I am I guess you could say I'm comfortable in these very ritzy spaces, but I've also been um, at home for better and worse in the very opposite of that. Um I'm a woman and I I mentioned that because I'm also someone who has been fat and thin basically throughout my entire life since I was, I don't know, maybe four years old is when I Mm -hmm. was put on my first diet. And, um, you know, you learn something about womanhood and kind of what women are are meant to be like in our culture, I think, when you have the right body, quote unquote, and the wrong body, quote unquote. So, yes, I have this resume of polarities um, that informs how I look at the world and how I write about the world, and in particular, how I think about what it means to have a body and, you know, what we learn when we sort of put our attention on our bodies and how our bodies move through the world.
0: And the book is a collection of these incredibly rich essays, and I do want to get to them in a moment. But first, with, with the, another thought sort of struck me in the introduction to your book, as you write, quote, I wrote this book to illuminate to illuminate these dominant and subordinated spaces, and the space that both separates and binds them. I wrote to articulate a space between. Beautiful. It reminded me of something, and we. I went and looked up my notes. I'd interviewed... Uh, George Lipsitz, uh, who is a professor of Black Studies and Sociology at the University of California, and he wrote a book called *Insubordinate Spaces, Improvisation and Accompaniment for Social Justice. And so I'm very interested in improvisation, come out of this Viola Spolin tradition. She was a social worker, so that's a roots. But there's also a tradition of improvisation by Augusta Boal, which was all social justice. Um, And he wrote in the book, quote, everyone has a part of the truth. That's people's weaknesses, uh, that people's weaknesses come from many of the same sources as their strengths, and that the truth and the lie, or the right thing and the wrong thing, are often not mutually incommensurable opposites, but instead different poles of a dialogically and dialectically connected unity. That's kind of, (laughs) yeah, isn't it? It's like, that's what we're talking about. That's That's what we're talking about.
1: Yes, I, I love it. I mean, that that right there, I guess maybe I didn't need to write my book.
0: <laughs> no, you didn't need to write your book. Your book is different. <laughs> kind of
1: just pointed people to that idea, but it's so true. Um, there's a quote by Walt Whitman that kind of reminds me of that, where he writes that all truths wait in all things.
0: Hmm. And
1: um, I love that because I think it's true, you know, on some kind of ineffable it's almost pre-verbal way. Um, but that idea of all truths, that is the shadow and the light, you know, that uh, truth is full of duality. And mm-hmm. the idea that um, all, the, all the things that are true can exist in every single one of us um, really speaks to me, probably the way that quote speaks to you. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. So the first uh, essay is on dating white guys while me, Um, I was very curious about this. My first wife was a Nigerian black black woman, and I'm like, am I going to find something inside this? And it was very different experiences. And I think maybe two being African born and, you know, live and went to boarding school in England. And like so very different experience. Um, But uh, there's a few things in here that were really interesting. Um, One you you write in in the book, quote, my feet have always struck me as my tell of otherness even more than my nose or hair or weight. Now that I think that surprises people. I mean cuz you wear shoes a lot, right? But yeah. that but but I guess when you take them off that's the fear, right?
1: Well, I mean so as I say in the book I wear a size women's size 12 and sometimes a women's 13. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, is p- a post-pregnancy thing. You know, my feet got a little bigger after I had my daughter, mm-hmm. much to my chagrin. Um, and, you know, when you have big feet, like, yes, they're certainly more visible without shoes, but you can't really hide them in shoes either. <laughs> so um, it's something that has, you know, I guess haunted me. I mean, I'm much less self-conscious about it now than I used to be, but For whatever reason, my feet just became this this, um, part of my body, you know, on which all of these lies that I had sort of absorbed about myself and all of these ways in which I felt um, problematically other, you know, in which Mm -hmm. I felt sort of vulgar instead of dainty and cute, you know, the way a girl is, quote, supposed to be... um, they all just landed on my feet, you know? I guess maybe my feet were extra big when I was little, you know, and I had to grow into them. I just, even since I was a kid, I was very self-conscious about them. And like, sure, I think it's so, it's somewhat of a personal quirk to me that my feet happen to be that part of my body. But I suspect um, that it's fairly universal for us to have some place on our body that we tend to hide or, or are self-conscious about revealing because we're afraid that, you know, having it in the sunlight will reveal something about us um, that we don't like, or that we're nervous about, you know? So hopefully there's some universality, even though, yes, feet are probably not the thing for most
0: people. And you too talk about, you, you write, quote, chasing these dudes was like simultaneously experiencing my demise and ordering it wow. That sucks.
1: (laughs) Yes, it did suck. (laughs) It's funny to go back and read, um, that essay in particular, which I wrote, let's see, it was one of the essays that was actually in my book proposal. So of course, Uh, once, once I began actually working on the book in earnest, my editor had notes about that piece. And so it's different than it looked in the book proposal, but, um, all of which is to say I have been with this piece and it's been with me for a long time, but still every time I read it, um, that, that feeling feels vivid to me of, I mean, talk about duality, right? There was a way in which what I hoped was by winning the approval of a certain type of white guy, I would be sort of airlifted out of my otherness. You know, I would be saved from, um, feeling so, so incredibly different and unworthy. Um, and so at the, at the time that I was doing this pursuit of these men, you know, which I'm not engaged in anymore, but I was, you know, until fairly recently, it was indeed like, uh, I knew that gaining their approval would, um, you know, essentially the the function of their approval to me was to obliterate the parts of myself that I didn't like. Right. So to gain their approval was actually this like very bizarre kind of painful self erasure, you know, that I was Mm -hmm. experiencing and pursuing. I mean, it was, it was, um, It was a rough experience and I had to do it over and over and over again until, you know, I was ready to stop as we often have to do with these rough patterns in our lives.
0: There, we, we do a lot of work with the behavioral science community. And so I get exposed to a lot of academic literature. um, And there is um, a theory by William Swan called self-verification theory that I've talked about before in the pod. It's it's fascinating to me because it, I I think I've always felt like people want to be seen as their best selves or their smartest selves or that sort of thing. Swan says, No. We want to be seen as we see ourselves, which explains a lot in terms of right
1: yes <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really does i mean it it explains why um it's almost comforting to have your worst fears about yourself
0: confirmed, yes right <laughs> right right it scratches that itch, but that, that's but that it's 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 and then, and then if we can work on ourselves, you know, and learn to love ourselves in, in certain kinds of ways, you know, we can make make better choices in terms of our partners. I mean, yeah.
1: That, that is, that's fascinating. I, uh, I, I have not ever heard of that or that theory, but boy, does it ring. Yeah. True. Oh,
0: I was in a room with a bunch of us when my friend, Heather Caruso, is uh, the um, associate Dean of diversity and inclusion at um, uh, UCLA. She, she said it to us and we all stopped. We're like, Oh God, this explains so much of my bad choices.
1: <laughs> exactly. It explains like your well, for me I shouldn't say your. I don't know anything about your dating life, Kelly, but it explains. Yeah, I'm why better I'm, now. It's fine. You know, <laughs> age, I don't know, 15 to 30 or something. Yeah, right? right. Seeking out um mirrors and other people that would reflect back to me the most, I you know, I guess darkest, most wounded version of myself. Because yeah. somehow um, it felt like a confirmation in a, in a way that is so sad, but of yep. course, incredibly
0: human. Right. And and the, we, we thank God we have the opportunity to grow and, you know, be different kinds of selves, which we are, we're not static. Right. Um, the Don't Let It Get You Down essay was, was so, it, it was reminiscent of something for me. Um, I had an assistant a long time ago, um, and we were having problems like she wasn't showing up in time and other stuff. And she basically was like, well, I have depression. And, and I hadn't had any experience with depression. And she gave me a book by William Styron. And I found a quote, uh, looked, I looked it up and it says, uh, quote, it is hopelessness even more than pain that crushes the soul. And I'm like, oh, and, and, and then you talk in this essay about the experience of being a black woman in America. Um, and this line really struck me, which is, quote, there is never a true reprieve. There is always a robbery underway. I can't, I mean, I don't think it is very hard sitting in a place of white male privilege that I sit in. I don't think, I think if you had told me that academically, I don't think I'd understand it. When you told it me poetically, I got it. And it's, you know, what does one say?
1: Thank you, Kelly. That is... um the highest praise for me as a writer, you know, is it something that I said um, illuminated a a space that was in the dark for someone or made Mm -hmm. them feel something um, that they might not have otherwise felt that that's always my goal when I'm writing. And, you know, with this book, I think for some people like, that sense of there always being a robbery underway and there never being a reprieve from the violation or the fear of violation or having to do cleanup after the violation, Mm -hmm. you know, um, will feel very familiar. Right. Because maybe they have identities like I do where that feels true. And for other people, it will have more of a revelatory um ring to it and I I welcome both I I welcome both I think um you know pain and hopelessness are interesting ideas to kind of rub up against each other you know because they are Mm -hmm. different Mm -hmm. um there is a tremendous amount of pain in being black in America um maybe in many parts of the world, but I can only speak to what I know. There's also a tremendous joy and satisfaction. I mean, I, if you, if you read the whole book, you know, like I talk about the pain of blackness, but I also am very, very clear that for me, blackness is a gift and it's something yeah. I would never trade. And the richness of it is like unparalleled for me in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh I don't know. I I think that's true for 99.9% of black people I know and meet. Um, but the pain is unabating <laughs> in a certain way. Yeah. And it's funny because I get asked a lot whether I am hopeful or hopeless about race relations in this country. You know, I, I've been asked it in, in relation to the book and I've been asked it just in relation to my day job as an attorney. And... I go back and forth on the answer, but, um, you know, I never feel hopeless about black people. I do sometimes feel hopeless about, um, whether people who are white can extricate themselves from the system of whiteness, um, enough to kind of crumble the hierarchy that we live under, but I never feel hopeless about, Black people.
0: Yeah, I, I think for white people, you know, when, if you're a fish, you don't see the water. And and so, you know, certainly I'm 55 years old, always been a liberal, uh, you know, married a Black woman, like it, but it didn't matter. They're, they're like the learning that, especially over the last couple of years, it, you know, taking not centering myself or whiteness at the center of every single story and it, it, it like, and and still to the, the, the like that's a, that's an everyday thing because we're still we're still living in the privilege and the systems. And 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 I'm not a good systems thinker anyway. So that was also just like, oh God, this is so when I learned about redlining and then going deep on that in terms of oh, it's food deserts, and then there's no trees, and so the air is worse. I mean, it's fucked up if you yeah. if you give yourself any time. And then the other story in this in this essay. My friend Tanya, um, who's a, a Second City uh, instructor, actress, the most longtime uh, African American woman, um, was told four times that she didn't have COVID when she had COVID. Oh, God. And you had that experience when you, you got in an accident in your car, right? And I mean, it was like, in, in, and then in the birth of your child, right? I mean, these, these are, were not good experiences. And there's so much data on this. I actually looked this up John Hopkins Journal. Uh, They had an astonishing example from two Baltimore neighborhoods. The difference in average life expectancy between Uptown Druid Heights, which is a mostly impoverished Black neighborhood, and Roland Park, a mostly wealthy white neighborhood, is 20 years.
1: It's shocking, but it's not surprising. Shocking, not surprising. Yeah, no, shocking, yeah. not surprising. I mean, I saw a map. I, I wish I could say where I saw it so that people could authenticate it for themselves, but it was a very reputable source. I want to say it might've been like the PBS Newshour Hour mm-hmm. that mapped um, COVID death and severe COVID cases in the South and compared them to the counties in which chattel slavery was um, most prevalent I mean, they basically were identical. Yeah,
0: yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Right. So shocking, not surprising. And, you know, the other reason it's not surprising to me, you know, these kind of inequities and inequalities um, is that we are taught and encouraged, all of us, Black, white, and everybody else to think of the racial harms in this culture as being in the past, you know, we're taught to think of chattel slavery as being the racial harm and, and taught to think that it's the distant past, you know, centuries and centuries ago. And there's a way in which like, yes, it was a long time ago. And there's another way in which um, it really wasn't, you know, in the book, I talk about my godfather who is in his eighties and when he was born in the nineteen thirties, right? So this is living memory for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um the last known person to be kidnapped in Africa and transported across the Middle Passage through the black market of chattel slavery, and then sold into slavery in Alabama, as it happened to be, um, this person was still alive. She was still alive in the 1930s, as were uh, something like 100,000 former, former, formerly enslaved people. So um we're not talking about something
0: that like no
1: is distant is, you know distant the distant past um who is it i feel like you're going to know this kelly and i don't know why i'm drawing a blank oh must have been faulkner who mm. said um the past isn't dead it, it isn't even past yeah, i believe past. is the quote mm-hmm. yeah um and you know again there's that duality of like the past is also kind of the present, right? We, yeah. we talk about them as if um, there is a thick, high, impenetrable wall between them. But actually, if there's a wall at all, it's quite porous. Yeah. And um, we ourselves carry things from both sides of that wall, you know, with us in our bodies and in our brains and
0: in our interactions with other people. Well, there's a reason literature and plays have been talking about ghosts for so long
1: yes you No, know, and
0: and that and that you know that's why shakespeare is so brilliant it's like it's like oh my god not, i am working on a project right now where um uh i commissioned two writers uh to develop a um uh basically an update of the great gatsby because it's when the public domain yeah we read, we read the book and we're like nothing's we've learned nothing this is a book ah. about how we have learned nothing that should be the show and it's like Great Gatsby, too. It's, it's so it's so dumb and so smart at the same time. The idea, and I'm like, let's 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 do it and let's sort of explore. And actually, very um, uh, a black and white team, and we want to explore those sort of issues because it feels right for that. Because um, yes. I think I think the underlying idea, not said out loud, is that um, uh, Gatsby was Jewish, not said, but I I think that was the what was going on. So.
1: Fascinating. Well, I'm a huge Gatsby fan. I know there are people who don't get it, you know, I, yeah. that's fair. Everything ain't for everybody. But I'm a huge Gatsby fan. And I love to hear you say, Kelly, that you have a a multiracial team working on you know, the reboot, I guess you could yeah. say. Um, I have noticed something when I, when I look at graphic novels of The Great Gatsby, because uh-huh. I, I like graphic novels and comics too. And um, I've noticed something that is so troubling to me, which is that one of the most interesting scenes in the book doesn't make it into any of the graphic novels I've seen. Um, and I have only seen ones that were created by white artists. Okay. And that is the scene um, when they're heading across the bridge into Manhattan. It's very early in the, in the book, Tom and. Okay. Um, thank you. They're headed across the bridge to the party. Maybe it's the second or third chapter and they pass a car um, full of oh. black people. Yes. Yes not described as black people in the book, but that's who's right. in the car. And it's like, if there isn't a metaphor for racial anxiety, like, like European descendants racing across a bridge against a car of black people into sort of the promised land of the city. Like if that's not rich with racial anxiety, I don't know what is, but it doesn't make it into somehow it has not made it into the visual representations of the book that I have seen. Mm. Um which to me, you know, I, I can't, I'd be speculating as to why that's the case, right? It could be that the authors fought for it and the editors were like, no, it's, you know, we can only have this many pages or whatever. But um, yes, I, I I, would think that with Black people at the, at, as part of the team that was redoing it or reimagining it, there would be more sensitivity to those yeah. Those aspects of the text,
0: yeah, and and my my black female writer, our black female writer, also writes for John, John Oliver Show. So very very perceptive individual who's picking up on stuff. So I think that sensibility is something we're we're looking for. And essentially, while we're talking about culture, and you mentioned you referred to this uh, earlier, you've got great in a later essay. You say, "quote Blackness is the opposite of cultural vacuity. It is ironic that thinking we were inferior, whiteness banished us to the outskirts." Only to see us create a culture that is arguably more ripe, rich, and dynamic and borrowed than any other on earth. So it's almost like the appropriation is, well, people have said this, right? Like the flattery of someone copying you. But I mean, it's it's true. And, and certainly in our work, we know that innovation comes from being on the edges, um, in 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 many ways and in, in, in mostly all ways. And we know that in our work. And yes, I mean, this is like the the, cult, the culture, I mean, you're talking like. Miles Davis, James Baldwin, I mean, you know, like it's a Mount Rushmore of American innovation.
1: It is. And that's part of why I say, you know, yes, there's things about being Black that are painful. And um, at times, the, the overall position that we're in in this culture feels hopeless. But um, yeah, I mean political invention, spiritual invention, you know, the creativity is so massive and so broad and perhaps it is indeed, you know, what you've said that sort of there's a particular kind of spark or energy or necessity at the margins mm-hmm. that feeds really deep creativity because you're marginalized.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, our artists have to learn to look at the world differently and 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 then certain oppressed people have to traffic in the the truth of what's going on or or else they're going to get hurt and and that is not the same of, in the dominant spaces mm-hmm. in you know, culture
1: yeah i love that i love that idea of um you know, you have to be aware of the danger and the darkness. It's basically a matter of survival Survival, yeah. on the outside. Yeah. Um, and when you kind of mix that in the pot with the creative impulse, some really magical things can happen. I mean, the only thing about that, that I, that I, I would resist as an idea, even though it's my own idea, is that like, it does, define blackness or otherness um by the very status of otherness right, right, just right. derivative like it, that's yeah. annoying
0: like yeah and also doesn't guys, work out great for the artist usually yeah
1: exactly exactly so I I'm always sometimes I do define blackness against whiteness because it's useful or because it's just the emotional truth of the moment but I'm always wary of defining anyone who's marginalized um by their marginalization because it just doubles the marginalizing, right?
0: It's yeah. not it might be it just might be they're two different things.
1: Yeah, that
0: could be yeah. it. I the the I'm always having to explain in like various keynotes that I give the difference between creativity and innovation because people always lump those together because they don't understand them at all. Oh and well you know, I hope are you gonna explain them? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, uh, well, first of all, you can have creativity without innovation. You can't have innovation without creativity. Creativity exists in a space where there's no judgment. You So so we know in our, our, our work that you can't improvise well if you're actually judging in the moment and you can't create with other people. So uh, I'm, and I'm mostly talking about group creativity. Uh, so creativity being that place where you're free to explore and play um, and uh, there's not rules or if there are rules, you can change the rules. Innovation then takes that creativity and turns it into a thing, or a service, or a product, or an idea, or or, or that. In which there are lots of places of judgment, um, but you, they they live in different worlds. And and so you know we do on this podcast a lot of stuff about work because we spend most of our time there. And the big argument that this this podcast is making is that we fundamentally are fucking up at work because we're not paying attention to the human condition because it's humans who are at work, and so. Ding, need, ding ding ding. <laughs> yes. If you need people to be creative, give them spaces to be creative without judgment. And then have these other spaces clearly defined so everyone knows what's going on. And so, you know, I've worked at Second City for over 30 years. And the genius of this setup that we've got here is this three-act structure, two acts of scripted content that you come to, a third act that is improvised, where we're making up and playing that third act is free. It's late at night. Uh, You can leave, other young people can come in. And so we've signaled to the audience that that's our failure lab we're going to play. But then the scripted port, you know, cost money and you come in, you got to get your tickets ahead of time and all that. So it's like, yeah, let's make this, let's signal, let's design systems, right? It's the system. It's a smart system for that. And the the problem in, in this country and that your book explores is we're not paying attention to the system that got created. And it's not just true, of racism, because that's very true. It's also education. We've got a factory system that belies the way that people actually learn. It's, really, it's crazy that this is going on when, you know, you've worked in the academic sort of like world, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, we have all the science that this is there's a better way and no one's done anything about it. It's not
1: well. We're path dependent, right? We have yeah, a way of, uh, especially as groups, of being stuck on the path that we're already on. You know, Speaking, like yeah. talking about creativity and innovation.
0: We're we are often path dependent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. All right. I have so many notes, and we're actually running out of time. Uh, I think that the the other area I want to explore because I was really. I was really, I I hadn't thought about any of this in this way, because I used to watch Law & Order SVU as well. Um, And... um, You, me, and everybody else. And everybody else. But that's really problematic, (laughs) like, in many, many ways. Um, I'm going to read this just because I think it's such beautiful writing. You say, quote, I saw no patterns at all, nor for years did I see how my love of SVU exemplified a broader theme in the culture, our collective willingness to gulp down violence against women as entertainment and how that norm helps to shove women like me who prefer to rage against such violence into a chronic numbed Bardo of normalization and consumption. Last sentence is killer. <laughs> very good use of the word Bardo. Thank you. <laughs> I read that outline to my wife. She goes, very good use of the word Bardo. <laughs> like, yeah, that's good.
1: Thank you. I actually remember when I was struggling to find that word, like with that sentence, just like, what, what is the exact space that I am trying to conjure? And then somehow Bardo popped into my head. Yeah, Maybe I should yeah. think George Saunders because it probably, yep, exactly. probably introduced it to me. Yeah. SVU problematic. I mean, I, I feel, I should say I am not dragging SVU. It's complicated. There is yeah. something to be said for stories being told, um i do not want to get hate mail from svu fans.
0: <laughs> no it's just you it's, know. A, it's what we started the conversation with you can actually appreciate those really good actors who, who are cool and we kind of all are, are hot for let's let's be honest all yes. of them um, uh some pretty like really good like i love noir right if, if you have an interest in that world it's a contemporary noir of sorts
1: yeah, and you know, the cadence is just almost soothing. It's so familiar. You can have it on in the background and you just feel like someone's reading you a bedtime story because you can follow the cadence almost by who's on the screen, right? There's something about it that's really soothing. So not dragging it at all. And in fact, I still watch it. I just don't watch the episodes where um, the women are being mutilated, raped, tortured, you know, whatever, where, where misogyny is the life, force of um the storytelling or the plot and i would say it took me i don't know 20 years of watching the show to have the realization that uh something was amiss with my identity as a feminist and um my identity as someone who has been sexually assaulted and my identity as someone who absolutely hates and rages against violence against women and how um you know, endemic it is in our culture, but at the same time could sit on the couch for hours and hours. I mean, you watch one of those marathons, right? You could yeah. pass the whole weekend watching um visceral depictions of women being tortured and and violated and all of that. And it was it was the it was the tension within me that caused me to think about, you know, why am I doing this and and what is the role of of this um program and the culture and the role of the program obviously is very complicated. As I said, like storytelling is important. And it's important to tell these stories because they do reflect reality to some extent. Um, on the other hand, like, they also profoundly normalize it. It's like, yeah, when you take this topic and wrap it in the kind of sweet frosting of entertainment,
0: yeah.
1: and you build it to be something that is bingeable, you know, like th- the benefit of the storytelling is not free. Like you are normalizing this, and you are um, teaching people how the culture works. Like you're teaching men how the culture works. You're teaching women how the culture works. I, that's a binary way of thinking about it. But, you know, as a shorthand and, you know, what people are being taught is like that women get violated. <laughs> that There's yeah. sort of something normal and repetitive about it. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that that is wholly benign. Hence my interrogation of the show and my own desire to watch it.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I was trying to think of the archetype which was, I think, dam- Damsel in Distress, right? Yeah. Uh, it's sort of like, it's
1: basically a Disney movie, but darker. Uh,
0: yeah. But, but I think in a modern media landscape, when there are things like binging, you start to then see under the the undergirding of, of what that might, it might be, a pro- it might become problematic because it's, 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 it's like everything these days It's like, you could have like difficult conversations uh, that end up being like really nuanced and interesting, or you can just drag someone on Twitter. Yeah. And it's, it's just like, there's, there's gotta be space for us to disagree or misunderstand or make a mistake um, and recover from it. <laughs> totally. Uh, because we all, I mean, this book is littered with it. We all do that. We're, 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 we all make, like, I thank God I didn't grow up you must do this too, in terms of like young people today, what they have to deal with in terms of like what they said five minutes ago. Oh um, yeah. Geez, oh God. I can't even imagine. I, I was recalling. So I grew up in a very wealthy uh, suburb of Chicago called Kenilworth. Pretty. No, I know I did this. I'm admitting this on the air right now. Had a <laughs> Malcolm X uh, hat, had, had the black hat with the X. I'm like, I would punch myself in the face if I like could encounter myself now, then.
1: Well, hopefully you'd punch yourself in the face and then you'd put your arm around yourself and say, let me familiarize you with the historical record, my friend, that you can buy a better fucking hat.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I, I can. I, that's the point, right? Uh, yeah. Be able to like take, take the hard hit, but then. Yeah. You
1: like, call someone out, but oh, you call them back I mean, in. Like you yeah. don't leave them out there. Right. Yeah.
0: But because again, like we, we can't know another's mind nor their intentions, and, uh, and, and that's just true. And people are complicated and like, that's always the thing with microaggressions, which is like, there are so many different ways that I could feel a disrespect towards you. <laughs> like the list is really, really long for, for any of us to pick mm-hmm. the one it's like, oh, that's why you're behaving. Or it's the, I had a shitty day, you know, kind of thing. And I'm just like being a dick or whatever. Cause I had that shitty day. So it's, it's complicated. And, and again, the thing I loved about this book. And I'm going to make you tell a yes and story in the moment. Okay. Uh, but the, thing, the thing I did love about this book is that it is, it's is—it's not afraid of its complications. And you're not afraid to sort of look at your own complications, but the, how they fit inside a complicated system. Um, and then t- you take the, the the reader through the many journeys of, of that to the one that sort of, the one that comes profoundly at the end that you don't go on about, which I'm kind of glad because it's one of those things of like, you just left it there. Was that your white husband didn't vote in the election that got Trump elected? This is true. (laughs) You just fucking leave that there and then kind of move on and don't reference it again. I'm like, oh, man. (laughs) man." Well,
1: I wanted to stay married. So doing a deep dive (laughs) into that in the public forum, you know, um, but yeah, I will, I will, you know, I'll just leave it at that, what I yes. said in the book.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, lovely. All right. So the way we always end the podcast with our guests is we ask for a yes and story and, and the parlance of improvisation, when two people are making something out of nothing, they get nowhere by saying no, um, they don't get very far by saying yes, they say yes, and they affirm and contribute in order to explore and heighten. Do you have a yes and story for us?
1: The thing I'm thinking of that like is a sort of inflection point or a moment, I guess, at which I said yes to something that I for my entire life had said no to vigorously, vehemently, um, was willingly accepting and almost like wouldn't say seeking out, but like whatever, is just shy of seeking out, um, the process of, of gaining weight through no longer dieting. So, um, moving from the sort of status quo of my life for so many years, which was like profound restriction and control around food into, um, a freer space that I knew was going to cause me to gain weight. And, um, you know, but but also like restore my mental and emotional health, if nothing else, and free up my creativity, um, you know, but it was going to come with this sort of like consequence, probably of gaining weight. And I did gain weight and have gained weight. And um, life goes on, as it turns out there, (laughs) like it was not the end of the world to um, just simply become fat and sort of come out as a fat person. I have a strong feeling that this is not actually what you were looking for. No, it's a thousand percent what I'm
0: looking for. Is it really? Yeah. And it's funny this weekend, we vacation, we we took like a weekend vacation up in Michigan with with family. And uh, one of the people had been sent to a fat camp when they were younger. um, And we're talking about these experiences, but decided to embrace the weirdness and all of that with just sort of joy and gratitude and, and love and they're just like okay with who they they are. And and it was I, I found it a really sort of refreshing because I know the biases that exist um in in this country in particular at this time uh around around that. Um and you know I've fluctuated in 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 weight before and you know it's just not it's just not healthy. So I think the I the idea of examining what means healthy to you, which is your soul and your mind and your body. And that's the thing you're trying to link up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and, and the, the, the dieting that's just going to be crushing is not going to speak to all of who you are. And if this book is anything, it's sort of like, here's who I am. Here's who I am. It's a lot of different stuff. It makes life complicated for me and probably for, for others, but I'm here and I'm writing about it. And Maybe there's a maybe there's a happy ending in there.
1: I think there is a happy ending. And I think, you know, um, there's a way that like, I don't know, counterculture is just better than like the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Like if you can embrace the aspects of yourself that are counterculture, like there's so much freedom and fun and joy there. And, you know, it's a, it's in some ways a more interesting and vibrant place to be than to be smack dab in the middle of the normativity, even though the culture often has this kind of scrambling to get to smack dab middle normativity. Um, But yeah, there's this way more happening on the, on the outskirts I have found.
0: The book is called don't let it get you down essays on race, gender, and the body. Uh, Savala Nolan, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Kelly. This was a lot of fun.
0: Getting to Yes, and is produced by The Second City, Second City Works, and WGN Radio. It's also produced by Elif Garris, with help by Mike Farinacchio and Colleen Fagy. The music that you hear that intros and outros the program is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you want to get more information on The Second City, you can reach us at www.secondcityworks.com or email us at works at (laughs) secondcity.com.